Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Warney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line from what is it, Seattle? Is that where your brother lives? Is Ethan Sachs? Yeah, I'm Uncle Ethan this week, Ben. So it's it's Uncle Ethan for the podcast. Uncle Ethan, Uncle yeah. Ethan, I like it. I'm such a terrible uncle. I'm the worst uncle on the planet. That can't be true. Or just because you you deal with kids all the time and you're just over it. <laughs> no, I just like I'm just not. I just wasn't interested when they were little, and now like they're not quite so little. But it's awkward because I wasn't like mm. super involved when they were little. I don't know. I just am not. I'm just a bad uncle. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you'd be such a good uncle because like you like games. I feel like that's just what kids want to do is play games. Yeah, but I want to play like magic cards. <laughs> and they're, not, they're not quite like magic cards age yet. My nephew is like getting into magic cards because uh, my brother sort of like got back into it because of the podcast. So that's been pretty sweet. Gave him some Dominaria packs actually from when we went to uh, the team GP. Oh, nice. So that was cool. The dregs left over from that great team GP finish we had. <laughs> yeah. How, how's your week going? Uh, it's going well. We had our we hosted a marching band invitational this weekend, which was a gigantic undertaking. Had a parade today, marched in the town of Paoli Fall Festival Parade, and I've gotten a chance to draft a little bit. So uh, we check in on the trophy leaderboard. I have 53 drafts under my belt, 17 trophies now, 114-43 record, and still holding strong at a 72% win rate. Wow. I have not dipped my toe back into M19 even after our, our deep dive last week. I've done a few more cube drafts, though I don't have my record handy, though I do know I have not trophied more than once and I do not know what is up if I just like am terrible at Legacy Cube or if I don't know. I just feel like I've lost the mojo. I need the mojo back. You like Andy Roddick. You need to get your mojo back. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I guess I'll be doing some more Legacy Cubes the, the coming week, but I'll probably take some more trips back to my homeland of Dominaria. Sounds sweet. Yeah. So we are going to do a sort of M19 lessons learned episode here for you today to look at some things that we took away from this format and how they may be applied to future formats. But before we get into any of that, we got to talk about the Patreon. Ben, I'm so excited about patreon.com slash Lords of Limited and how much the community has embraced the changes that we made to the reward tiers a couple weeks ago. It's been really, really awesome to see people diving in headfirst to those rewards. And the base level reward is access to the Lords of Limited Discord. That is where people discuss all things limited. We are looking at spoilers day by day, just checking them in one by one, looking at how they're going to apply, how they fit into cards that have previously been spoiled, looking at how they may slot into cards that are 
going to be spoiled. People are getting all hyped about Demir, and then we've got those stats folks coming in and being like, "Uh, uh, uh, there's just been way more Demir cards spoiled, so we don't know. Really looking forward to what Guilds of Ravnica has to offer us. There are some more awesome perks at higher donations available. I encourage you to go check out patreon.com slash Lords of Limited as a place to give back to the show if you so choose. And we want to make sure we shout out each and every new donator the week that they choose to become a patron. So we want to welcome a whole mess of people this week. Tracy, Spencer, Brian G, Brian W, Cunning, Nate, Chad, Matthew, Bogdan, Mitchell, and Gregors. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Your support means so much to us. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. And I cannot contain my excitement for Guilds of Ravnica. I am really looking forward to diving into the Discord and figuring it all out as soon as it hits. Yeah, absolutely. I might have to I might have to be sick, you know, when when the that week that the set comes out, I, I feel a cough <laughs> coming on. I hear a little tickle in your throat. I yeah, no. I think uh, Dr. Ravnica may get to write you a note there. <laughs> so uh, you got a roundtable for us this week, Ben? I do. Yeah, this was my most recent M19 draft. If you want to take a seat. Yeah, I'd love to. All right, pack one, pick one. You see the following options. Strangling Spores, three and a black for the instant. Target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn. Sky March Bloodletter, two and a black for the 2-2 flyer. When it ETBs, target opponent loses a life and you gain a life. Goblin Instigator, one and a red for the 1-1. One, one. When it ETBs, create a 1-1 one, one Goblin Red creature token along with it. Nightmare's Thirst, single black for the instant. You gain a life. Target creature gets minus X, minus X until end of turn, where X is the amount of life you gain this turn. Militia Bugler, two and a white for the 2-3 Vigilance. When at ETBs, look at the top four cards of your library. You can reveal a creature with power two or less from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Knightly Valor, four and a white. We've got some powerhouse white uncommons here. Plus two, plus two, and Vigilance to the thing you enchant and bring along a 2-2 white knight token with Vigilance. Ether Shield Artificer, three and a white for the 3-3 three, three. at the beginning of your turn. Target artifact creature control gets plus two plus two and gains indestructible until end of turn and your rare is transmogrifying wand three mana for the artifact uh it enters the battlefield with three charge counters on it you can pay one tap it remove a charge counter at sorcery speed to turn something into a goat a two four ox token yeah it's not a goat ben it's an ox (laughs) it's the greatest of all time and for my next trick i will turn this creature into an ox so i have a very distinct memory of transmogrifying wand when we were doing our little sealed weekend and trying to get as many reps in as possible. And I had the chance to play with Chaos Wand and thought it was a super bomb in sealed. And then it turned out to be a bit less powerful in draft, in my opinion. And I hadn't yet had a chance to play with Transmogrifying Wand. And you had, and you were like, meh. And I tried it out, like, I think the draft or sealed after that I heard you say meh. And I agreed. I was pretty underwhelmed by it. So I imagine you still pretty much have the same feeling on it as meh. I do still feel kind of meh about it, but all these other pros like LSV and Ben Stark, and I remember Mike Sigrist writing an article about it, were all super high on it. So I wanted to see what all the hype was about, and I actually took it here to give it a whirl. Now, if you're not going for the old give it a whirl pick here, what do you think is the best card out of this pack? Uh, I think it's one of the white uncommons, and I think it might actually be Aether Shield Artificer on raw power level, but that's sort of like a gold card because you need artifacts to go along with it. So I'm steering away from that, and I think it actually ends up being Militia Bugler. I've been super happy with that body, and a lot of times in your white decks, you have a lot of creatures with power two or less. So Militia Bugler has really overperformed for me. I really like that guy. Yeah, I agree. I was kind of down on it at the start. I think if I was looking at this pack from the start of the format, I might have taken Knightly Valor because I was so hyped about it. But Knightly Valor ended up being, I think, an underperformer 
in this format compared to where we've seen it before. I agree completely. All right, so you got Wand in your pile. What's next? Moving on to pack one, pick two, you see the following options. Snapping Drake, three and a blue for the three, two flyer. Skyscanner, three mana for the one, one flyer. When it ETBs, you draw a card. Gallant Cavalry, three and a white for the two, two Vigi. And when it enters the battlefield, create another two, two white knight creature token with Vigilance. Surge Mare, double blue for the 0-5, can't be blocked by green creatures. When it deals damage to an opponent, you get a loot, and you can pay one and a blue to give it plus two, minus two until end of turn. And Ravenous Harpy, two and a black for the 1-2 flyer with one sacrifice another creature, put a plus one, plus one counter on Ravenous Harpy, and an uncommon has been taken out of this pack. I just have such an excessive love for Ravenous Harpy that (laughs) I want to take it here. I'm not sure if it's the best card out of the pack, but the pack is fairly weak. Like you have the flexibility of having a colorless card so far. And the one time that I was super impressed by Transmogrifying Wand, you were actually Skyping in on my stream for this was in a red black sacrifice tech and using wand as another sort of way to blow up one of your opponent's creatures act after you active treason it. So I'd be pretty happy to grab Harpy here and then go down that path. Yeah, that was what my thought process was exactly. Um, I think just on raw power level, Surge Mare might be a better card. And even if you wanted to take Skyscanner to keep your options open, I could see it. Mm-hmm. But with Wand already in my pile, I was thinking, all right, sweet. Let's try to steer towards Red Black Sacrifice deck. Also, Skyscanner is pretty good with Transmogrifying Wand, draw a card, and then upgrade. I will turn this Skyscanner into a 2-4. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's just not good though. That's why I'm so, uh, want for your want to be good. Your opponents have to have like significantly powerful cars that they're relying on. Uh-huh. Okay. So moving on to pack one, pick three, we've both got Juan and Harpy in our pile, or maybe you didn't take Juan. pack one, pick one. Did you ever say what you would have taken? Uh, I don't know. Probably Bugler. Like I'm sort of off transmogrifying wand. Right, right. Okay. So moving on to pack one, pick three, you see the following options. Another sky scanner, Bart Brute, two and a red for the three, two menace. Vigilant Bayloth, three green green for the five five Vigi, and Gaspark Twins, five green green for the seven seven Trample, and can block an additional creature each combat, and an uncommon and a common is missing from this pack. How dare you name Gaspark Twins out of the pack, but not Colossal Dreadmaw, which is definitely a better card. I That's not immediately apparent to me. Oh, I think, I think that's true. I think it's close. Vigilant Bayloth trumps them both, I think. Yes, I agree. I do think, and I know I take this card way too early, but it's very good with your first two picks. There's a Doom Dissenter in this pack. The one in a black 1-1 one, one that when it dies makes a 2-2. Two, two. And it keeps you black, which I think also is worth saying, even though I know you want to end up red-black. But like, red-black sacrifice doesn't really want Bogger Brute. I feel like it almost maybe wants Skyscanner more so if you end up with like the dream red-black sacrifice deck which you've got a good start for because that deck usually hurts for the enablers. I don't know. I might be tempted by Doom Descender, but I think I'd just be on raw power level here and take Vigilant Bayloft. I think that's probably the most responsible pick. I ended up on Bargart Brute because I wanted to be in Red Black Sacrifice, but I think that's a fair point you bring up that like a Red Black Sacrifice deck might actually want Skyscanner even more. Mm-hmm. I think Skyscanner is certainly a better card than Doom Descender to take this early anyway. Moving on to pack one, pick four, you see the following options. Strangling Spores, three and a black for the instant. Target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn. Gearsmith Guardian, five mana for the three, five, gets plus two, plus oh, as long as you control a blue creature. Electrify, three and a red for the instant deal four damage to target creature. And another Bogger Brute, two uncommons and a rare are missing out of the pack. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it sort of comes down to like, do we think there's a pretty big difference between Strangling Spores and Electrify? And I think those are probably the two best cards in the pack. I think there's a significantly noticeable difference, but not like a large gap, like maybe a five to a six on a scale of one to 10 or something. Yeah, that sounds about right. My experience with both of those cards is like either it's killing Starcrown Stag or Skyrider Patrol 
or it's like trading down on mana, basically. I guess Electrify has some reach to like Epicure of Blood, but not much more that it's killing. Angel of Dawn, like is a card that's a flyer that you want to kill. There's some three power flyers running around that you might want to get out of the air. Right. Spores can do that too. Right. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm saying like, what's the difference between them? And I don't think it's that much. And I think I would at this point rather play Harpy than Brute, but maybe that's wrong. But I think I'd rather play Harpy than Brute. And I think I would take Spores. That's fair. I actually ended up on Electrify there. Mm. So I was already pretty tunnel visioned on Red Black Sacrifice at this point uh, and was in for a Root Awakening here in pack one, pick five, where your options are a Snapping Drake, three and a blue for a three, two flyer, a Resco Swiftclaw, one and a white for a three, one, best black card in the pack is probably a Hired Blade, two and a black for the three, two flash, best red card in the pack is a Fire Elemental, blech, three red red for the five, four. Uh, and then there's also an Aviation Pioneer, two and a blue for the 1-2, and when it ETBs, create a 1-1 one, one Thopter token with flying. Yeah, Aviation Pioneer is the best card in this pack by a pretty significant margin, I think. And it also goes great with Wand and the Harpy. So you could pivot into like blue-black sacrifice control or something. I don't know. So I'm not too bummed about taking that here. Yeah, that's what I ended up on as well. And then pack one, pick six, you see the following options. Star-crowned Stag, three and a white <laughs> for the 3-3. Three, three. What? Just like, no matter what, you could see that pack one pick 75 and you'd be like, ah, my first white card, star crown stag. <laughs> it's always an option, man. There's a reason it's my number one most drafted common. Sure is. Uh, there's also a shock, single red for the instant, deal two damage to any target. A dwindle, two and a blue, enchanted creature gets minus six, minus oh, and when the creature blocks, destroy it. And a bristling boar, three and a green for the four, three, can't be blocked by more than one creature. So as I just continue to show my bias against red-white, which it seems like you are probably navigating towards at this point, uh, I would probably take a card out of the pack that you haven't mentioned, which is Skeleton Archer, the three and a black, three, three that pings something when it enters the battlefield, just to keep my options to one color at the moment. Again, a card that's not too bad if it like does its job by picking off something or finishing off something and then maybe the body isn't super relevant then you can turn it into an ox a two four or sacrifice it to the harpy you keep mentioning wanding your own creatures i really want to be wanding my opponent's creatures i think no i don't want to give them powerful two fours <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that's a good place to wrap this up here. I think you've taken a much more responsible route through this draft than I did. My last two M19 drafts have been a little off the rails. I O2 dropped the draft before this with a complete Esper pile. So I think maybe I'm hitting the uh, boredom experimentation stage and it's not working out so well for me. Do you feel like things are fairly predictable in the queues? Like, do you feel like people are also maybe splashing around doing experimental things this late or that they're also just doing like ABCs and you're messing around? I feel like the latter. I think people are doing ABCs and I'm maybe messing around a little bit more now. Yeah, well, this is a perfect time to be wrapping up the format and looking at some lessons learned. So let's dive into the list here. We've got 15 points, things that we want to look at from the format that uh, I think can hold over to future formats and we're good takeaways. I think these kinds of reflections are things that we don't do enough, or at least I'll say I don't do enough, and I think are good to like reinforce and put into words. So number one, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think trading off aggressively can combat cards that take advantage of board stalls. Um, I've talked about two menaces that I think exist in this format, Declare Dominance and Sleep. And early 
early in the format, I chalked a lot of my losses up to what I called oops, I win cards. And I think certainly Banefire falls in this category, but I felt that two of the biggest offenders were both sleep and declare dominance. Losing to those cards felt so bad. And I felt that those losses were out of my control. I was like, well, I just can't do anything about that. Both of those cards preyed specifically on stalled out boards. And I think a way to combat that is to aggressively trade off creatures in the early and middle parts of the game so that if an effect like this does come up, its impact is less severe. So if you sort of just like your opponent plays a 2-2, you play a 2-2 and then 3-3-3-3, and you have sort of a staring contest, declare dominance or sleep. A player who has either of those cards is going to reap the rewards of that sort of staring contest. Whereas if you are fine trading off those creatures, then having only two creatures left on the battlefield or one creature left when your opponent does draw sleep or curve out into declare dominance that is going to be much less impactful and much less of an oops, I win card. I imagine we're going to continue to see effects like this. We've already sort of seen a spoiled card in Guilds of Ravnica, the like one black green one one with death touch that has to be blocked by everything. That card looks so busted. It looks busted, right? But also it looks like you've got at least a turn to be aware of it. And I think if you are aware that your Golgari opponent may have access to that card, then you want to trade off more aggressively. Or if you've seen sleep already, or, you know, time of ice is a sleep variant. I feel like we're just going to continue to see these kinds of effects in limited. And I think for me, as someone who sort of relies on like, I'll just get to the late game, I'll be fine. I'm happy in a board stall that I need to keep those cards in the back of my mind. And this is a really good way to combat those effects. That's what I was going to ask you. So you're waiting like with Sleep and Declare Dominance until you've seen them out of your opponent in game one, two, before you're trading off aggressively, right? Sure, I think so. But I think there's also like uh, something to consider about like you are facing an opponent in the finals who is a blue deck or a green deck in M19. It's not ridiculous to anticipate that they have an effect like this. I'm not saying I'm like trying to do that where it's not beneficial to me before I've seen the effect. But I think just thinking about it from the start rather than in hindsight is going to be a level up for me. Sure. That makes sense. Moving on to our second point, spells with difficult mana costs should not be written off. When I checked out the M19 spoiler and I saw Gigantosaurus, I just laughed, you know, (laughs) and I was thinking like, I'm never going to put this card in my deck and my opponents are going to put it in their deck and they're going to cast it on turn five and I'm going to be mad and complain. Um... But I just I just didn't look at it as a real limited card. And I think if we like take a step back and rewind, it was a very real card in M19 limited and mono green was a very real deck in M19. Um, And so I think the takeaway from this is, you know, if Wizards is putting cards like that in the set, you know, they're not necessarily always going to be plants for constructed or whatever. Like Gigantosaurus is not a good card in constructed. So if it's not doing it there for constructed, what else is it doing if it's not there for limited? So maybe that's a clue to the fact that Mono Green was a deck to begin with. Rather than scoffing at it, we should have had an open mind. I think there's been several things like that that we've messed up, like Imminent Doom comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, as the build around enchantment from what was it HOU? Yep, our devastation. Things like that that to have an open mind and to be more willing and more receptive to cards that R and D is putting into the set. And I think looking ahead to Guilds of Ravnica, you know, we've already seen some cards with incredibly difficult looking casting costs. Like Niv Mizzet has blue, 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 red, red, red. Um, and there's like a cycle of uncommons that are like XXYY casting costs, like green, green, black, black or whatever. And I think just being more willing to look at those cards as more castable than I think my initial inclination would be uh, is something I'm going to try to take into Guilds of Ravnica with me. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, this is all pure speculation right now, but 
I think speculating on future formats is kind of fun. When you see those uncommons, the like XXYY cycle, which are all pretty powerful, but the mana cost seems so restrictive. Are you thinking that those are going to be cast based on the number of guild gates you have, like how good your mana base is? Are you thinking that those cards are going to be cards you expect to wheel once you've carved out that guild as your seat? Or do you think those are cards that you have to like nab early because they're so powerful and then like make your deck work around them? I would guess the latter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I think probably a combination of the two. I think you would probably be willing to grab the most powerful ones early. But I also think like later in the draft, like in pack one, you're probably going to be grabbing them. And then in packs two and three, once you've carved out a niche for yourself, I think you're probably hoping to get them later because of the restrictive mana costs. And it could be a deal where, you know, there's a reward for picking gates super highly because it's going to enable you to cast these types of cards more easily than your opponents. Although I'm sure my opponents are going to turn for them off of basics and I'm going to have like six guild gates in my deck and I'm going to be casting them on turn eight. So it's <laughs> <laughs> just like fully prepared. <laughs> Exclamation mark. Why me? Yeah, I, I really hope from like a draft skill perspective that they're rewards like exactly what you described like you carve out the color pair for your seat in pack one and then you get to just fist pump when you see those cards like 10th pick in pack three yeah that will be absolute gasoline you know if you're wheeling a card or you're getting it seventh or eighth pick some of those you know aabb cards are crazy powerful Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely all right number three here this one is near and dear to my heart get ready for it people x ones are bad in limited is the rule not the exception so i really want to ask you when the last time you felt playing a two mana two one or a three mana three one felt good? Uh, Ixalan? Yeah, Ixalan. Sure. I- I'll take Ixalan. So we're talking like a-, a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. So they felt fine, but they really felt good because you were going to suit them up. Like you just wanted cheap creatures to like get your auras on. Well, or you wanted a merfolk that was a two one or a vampire that was a two one. It was a very tribal heavy format, I think. Okay. All right. Fine, fine, fine. How about before that? Probably cons of Tarkir. Yeah, that's sort of what I feel like. I feel like it doesn't happen that much. The cons of Tarkir flashback really kind of threw me for a loop because I was so thrilled to play Highland game. Yeah, that was my boy in cons of Tarkir. I mean, that card was when you got to fill up your two drop slot, when your two drop slot was higher than your three drop, even when you accounted for all your morphs. I felt like you had a nearly unbeatable curve because so much of what your opponents were trying to do was just play three mana two twos. And when you got to just go like two one on two, two two on three, and then like two two drops on four. Your opponent had no chance a lot of the time. Well, and then like the other huge benefit of that was like your 10th pick Highland game was trading with your opponent's like third pick super powerful morph because you put them on the back foot. Right. And I mean, that also combines with the removal being mostly clunky aside from like debilitating injury and savage punch in that format that like you just got to get so much value out of that card. And there wasn't really a ton of stuff that punishes X-1s. And when we talk about things that punish X-1s, we're not only talking about like a card like Radiating Lightning from Dominaria that dealt a damage to each creature your opponent controls. We're talking about things like Sky Scanner, like Elvish Rejuvenator, like Skeleton Archer that ETBs and pings a creature, like Plague Mare that wipes out a bunch of things. Like we're just talking about a lot of different effects, not only just things that that punish X-1s in sort of a very literal sense. And I think cards that embarrass X-1s, 
two mana one threes like Omen Speaker or Daylight Chaplain, that sort of thing. I think they just run rampant and limited these days. And I think I'm going to approach each format as if this is the rule now rather than the exception. I have a bit of a, a counterpoint to that a little bit. I saw this I saw this in the show notes and I, it just feels like a bit of an overgeneralization to me or maybe more of a hot take on your part. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be always important to look set by set for like, you know, that's the reason we're compiling all those stats about the power and the toughness and things like that. And I, I think it's very real that there could be a format again where two ones are good or they're they're not punished and they're going to trade with two twos or three twos. I think we just have to look carefully at the power and the toughness. But I I could certainly see it being true that more often than not, like maybe 60 percent of the time or something. But I'm, I'm going to hesitate to go all in on just, you know, X ones are never going to be good again. So, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I want to have like a heuristic to start from when I look at a format, like the way that we're sort of generally think that auras aren't great, though I think as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that that may be shifting a bit as modern magic progresses and as removal gets kind of clunkier, that I think from looking at this, I'm not going to just go in blind and be like, yeah, X ones are bad moving on. I certainly want to look at it in the context of the set, but I think I'm going to approach it from looking at like X ones are bad. Is there anything in the format that makes me think that that's not the case? Right. That makes sense to me. And I think even even as recently as M19, I think in red, white, you know, Vyashino Pyromancer and Cavalry Drillmaster and Goblin Instigator, you know, two mana for the two one ones. I think those cards had a place in one of the better decks in the format. I just think you and I sort of steered away from that deck because those cards were lower power level and there were so many ways to punish X ones. But you, you can't deny that there was a very real deck that had X ones as a key piece in M19 even. I can't deny it. I just felt like those weren't the things that made me maybe Goblin Instigator aside, like Pyromancer and Drillmaster were not the cards that excited me in that deck or the cards that I was like, oh, yeah, you're doing it in that deck. No, I agree. But I think they were very strong role players in the good ones. Next one for me, moving on to number four, getting the top commons right at the start of the format can give you a huge leg up. So if we take a look at white, you know, if we fast forward back to our set review, um, and just take a look at where we had the top commons ranked for white. I missed on Angel of the Dawn. I think that's certainly in the top three white commons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I left that out because I saw all of white's commons were super powerful. And I decided that was the most expensive one. And I made that same mistake with Cloud Reader Sphinx. So maybe that needs to be a takeaway for me to not be shy. Uh, you know, if there's a five drop common that's super powerful, we've already seen a three blue blue, three four flyer, scry two spoiled. Yeah. In Guilds of Ravnica. I also, we can throw back to HOU that, what was it called? The angel there that ET beat and gained three i think we both missed on that and like i feel like each week of that format we're like it's going up it's going up it's going up like we just kept having to adjust for how good that card was yeah for sure um so as far as the rest of the white commons i had bonds one stag two uh, and Pegasus Courser number three, which was very close, but I think Angel probably ends up being number three, maybe even number two. But I did realize that White's commons were super busted and way better than all the other colors commons. And that that let me at the start of the format try very hard to steer into White, not forcing, but I did try at every possible opportunity when I had the chance to get into White to get into White. And I think that led to a lot of my early success. Um, and then in blue, I missed pretty hard on Essence Scatter. I think that's clearly the top blue common. Um, but we both course corrected super quickly. I originally had Dwindle 1, Pioneer 2, Wind Mage number 3. Uh, in black, uh, I, we had Caress 1, Spores 2, Bloodletter 3. And I think those were the top three commons. But I think 
Bloodletter ended up being ahead of Strangling Spores. And we initially put Neonate in there at number three. I think by the end of the format, Spores was back at number three for me over Neonate. Yeah, for sure. But like, I think, you know, again, first copy of Neonate over second copy of Spores, that sort of thing. Probably, yeah. Uh, and then in red, we had Shock 1, Electrify 2, Bargrip Root 3. I think we both had that. And I think Electrify is number one ahead of Shock now. Um, and then Brute number three. And then in green, I had Rabid Bite 1, Druid of the Cowl 2, Elvish Rejuvenator 3. That's so embarrassing. But I course corrected on Elvish Rejuvenator even before the format started, before my very first draft, thanks to you and the Discord and like conversations with other streamers. Like I realized pretty quickly that I was wrong on that one and was able to course correct. And so I think like having those top commons identified early on quickly let me be a lot more successful in the format and i think in dominaria my top commons were screwed up for a lot 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 longer and that sort of is what you credit to like sort of feeling a bit at sea in that format for a while i think so yeah yeah that makes total sense to me i mean the commons are the nuts and bolts of a limited format and getting them right at the start that's the key to success i think yep so i'm really going to try to maintain open lines of communication with you and the discord and other streamers and try to be very aware of that because I was not at the beginning of Dominaria and I resolved to make that a takeaway and I did and I think that helped out a lot at the start of M19. I like that a lot. I definitely want to take that to heart. Number five, for synergy to be consistent, you need to have good pieces available at common. So if we look at red, white, go wide or red, white aggro and black, white life gain in M19, two of the strongest decks in the format. Black-White Life Gain had an enabler and a payoff at common in Vampire, Neonate, and Epicure of Blood. And Red-White had the Three Musketeers. It even had Gallant Cavalry and Goblin Instigator as multiple bodies for one card. And then a bunch of ways to get payoffs for going wide in Trumpet Blast and Inspired Charge. And those are all at common. So if we compare that to like Blue-White, most of the good artifacts are at uncommon, and certainly the cards that cared about artifacts like Aerial Engineer and Aether Shield Artificer. Red-Black Sacrifice could never really be a Tier 1 deck without a repeatable Sacrifice outlet at common. Like we had Active Treason, but we didn't really have the ways to sacrifice the things except that uncommon right there was no nantuko Hess running around exactly i think the stronger the deck in limited the more redundant pieces it will have at common if we can look at like red black sacrifice blue red artifacts even like red green as a four power deck you need colossal majesty at uncommon or really sarkhan's unsealing at rare so i think that's going to be something i'm going to look for in the full spoiler for sets coming up if i'm looking at like is this kind of archetype viable and if it doesn't have redundant pieces at common i think it's going to be viable, but probably going to come up a lot less often. Moving on to number six, building on my last point, talking to people a lot about the top commons at the start of the format is hugely beneficial to getting it right and correcting quickly. So I think people that play magic are generally smart, and I think you should trust their opinions. Or if you don't like trust people quite as much, at least if they've got differing opinions than yours, you should weigh them against your own opinion and try to decide why they think what they think and why you think what you think. And maybe the common ground is somewhere in the middle. So I think in Dominaria, I was largely doing my own thing, like the first 15 or so drafts. Um, and I think there were a couple of factors. I was trying to get as many drafts done as possible because we had the team GP coming up with right. me and you and Stunlock. Um, and then in addition to that, I was just losing like I lost so hard my first five drafts and I was not used to that. And I think that made me not want to reach out to people because I was embarrassed that I was losing and then not discussing things with people just made me continue to lose and make the same mistakes, you know, with the commons and things I had wrong in the format. So I wasn't I was pulling away from Twitch. I was pulling away from you. I mean, we had our things, our rankings in the spreadsheets, but I, I just wasn't as actively seeking out information. I was just jamming my own drafts thinking like, why can't I get this right? Well, let's try to do this. And it just takes so much longer to do it on your own than it does 
to engage with other people. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest mistakes I made in Dom, you know, we're talking about M19 right now, but this is like sort of led me to course correct. So I have to go all the way back to Dom. I had no idea like the top blue commons were so wrong for me. And that was the best color in Dominaria. And I, I didn't realize that because I had the top commons so screwed up. And I think that led to a lot of my poor win rate at the start of the format. And if we fast forward to M19, I was super proactive about seeking out conversations with you and with Twitch and in the Discord. And I think I knew white was the best color and I knew it wanted to be aggressive. And I was able to take advantage of that early on. And like some of those things I talked about, like correcting Essence Scatter, correcting Elvish Rejuvenator, making those those corrections early on due to discussions with people helped keep my win rate high. I think the biggest thing for me out of that whole point is something not really M19 specific, but like just personal specific for me is about like when you're losing and being embarrassed about losing, because not only do I sort of have an ego as a human being, but also, you know, if we're talking about like you and I are hosts of this podcast that has like a pretty thriving discord community, and we're also active on Twitter and to like show your win rate publicly on your Twitch stream, a lot of that, like if you're losing feels bad and does make you want to disengage. And that's not the way to combat that. That's not the way to improve your win rate or to course correct. The way to do that is to like dive harder into the community that you've cultivated. So I definitely think I need to take that away for when I'm feeling those, those valleys rather than those peaks. Absolutely. Number seven, curve is important in limited is the rule not the exception so i love to mess around i love to dirtle obviously i love to not have to play two drops i love to not affect the board but i can't do that i think i want to approach each format in a way of like how can i make that happen and i think i just can't i i think if we look back to rivals of ixalan that's really in sort of our podcast history, that's the format that I think about as not being a curve out format. You could have like a couple things that affected the board before turn three and be totally fine. We called that like a dong format because like the three drop slot was just so glutted. Dom was very much a late game format, but you still cared about two drops. The modal spells being the best, right? The like G2 Chroniclers, the Caligo Skin Witches and like Saperly Migration. Like, you know, those were cards that you were hoping to play on turn six, but were so great to include in your deck because if your opponent did happen to go like two mana a 2-2, you go, all right, fine. I, I throw down my 1-3 and I can stonewall that for the rest of the game rather than taking like 6, 8, 10 damage from it. M19 was no different. There weren't a lot of great 2-drops, which made the good ones even more sought after. And curb was very important. Identifying the strong twos is something I'm really interested in keeping an eye out for in the future. So not only looking at like how creatures match up, but also like the two drop slot specifically, I'm very interested in figuring out what the strong commons and uncommons are for that area. No, that makes total sense to me. I remember in Rivals of Ixalan having my exclamation point curve format command because like my deck would look terrible like as far as curve and people would come in and say like, you need to pick two drops, like your curve is bad. And I would just type exclamation point curve and it would say this is not a curve out format. (laughs) And it really wasn't. But you're 100% right. I do think that's the exception. And I think we've gotten uh, caught up in that a little bit in these last few formats that have rewarded curve a lot more specifically me with Dominaria. It took me a while to figure out that I needed to have a good curve and couldn't just jam all fives and sixes in my Dominaria decks. I think it's difficult when it's a set like Dominaria, which feels so powerful and so late gamey, but you just can't fall behind like that because people can curve out on you. And you look at like Blue Red Wizards was like the best deck in the format. That was a curve out deck. That was an aggro tempo deck. You needed ways to combat that. You look at like M19 with the red white aggro deck. You needed a way to combat that if you wanted to get to the late game. Yep. I think that's a great takeaway that that is the rule and we should look out for the exceptions like Rivals of Ixalan. Moving on to number eight, 
Uh, this is again going back. Lots of mine had to do with drafting and like decks and things like that because I think I did a poor job drafting Dominaria and I think I did a much better job doing M19. So my next point is understanding the decks that allow the top commons to shine is just as important as identifying the top commons. So for example, I think Starcrown Stag is one of the best commons in M19, but it has to go in an aggressive deck. That card is an aggressive card. Um, and it gets better in multiples in an aggressive deck. So if you've got three copies of Starcrown Stag and your deck doesn't want to attack, your deck's probably not very good and your Starcrown Stags are probably like C minuses. So there were times in M19, you know, where I wanted to play aggro and I drafted Starcrown Stag highly, but I just didn't quite get there and I had to leave them out of my deck. Um, and I think early on, knowing that all of White's commons like Pegasus, Corsair and Angel of Dawn wanted to go in aggro decks, I literally just would draft White and try to draft White aggro decks. And I think that also led to a lot of success. One, because I knew what the best commons were, and two, I knew what sort of a shell they wanted to go in, and I was able to leverage that. And I think one that I figured out later was that blue-black really wanted to operate at instant speed, um, and then I started to, you know, take cards that worked better together in tandem, like Essence Scatter, Strangling Spores, Bone to Ash, all the other instant speed, you know, counter spells, removal, interaction, um, even Anticipate was a lot better in blue-black. And so, just finding the shell where the commons work together the best. And then some of that's just learning the archetypes, but that's super important too, not just identifying the top picks for each color. Yeah, that is something that I feel like we discuss a lot on our streams when people are like, well, how did that card end up in your sideboard? It's so good. And it's like, well, you have to look at the context of the deck. Like, yeah, sure. That's like one of the best commons in the set, but what is it doing in, in this deck? I'm trying to win by draining my opponent with vampire neonates. I'm not trying to win by attacking. I'm not leveraging any other creatures attacking with my star crown stag. Right, right. Number nine, I want to be aware of how conditional removal matches up against relevant creatures, not just the average creatures. So one of the features of our crash course episodes is we look at the average power and toughness of creatures at common and uncommon and sort of what the removal spells offer in terms of how efficiently they answer creatures or sort of what is the threshold of toughness. Like we'll talk a lot about like that magic number, like is three toughness the magic number? Is four toughness the magic number? Is it two? So if we look at M19, in my experience, I think I came in hot on shock and it often didn't do the trick. Electrify, as we talked about in the round table, like I feel like if it wasn't really picking off Skyrider Patrol or Stag, that it was often trading down on mana because the larger threats, you often needed some just catch-all removal like Lich's Caress. Same with the Strangling Spores, though I, I came up on that. You know, I, I came in hot on Dwindle and then progressively went down and down and down. Luminous Bonds was at a great rate, but oftentimes there were activated abilities or static abilities that remained relevant. So I, I want to just understand the drawbacks of removal and also how reprints reposition themselves. So looking at a card like Shock or Electrify as cards we've seen before in limited context and may have been better or worse in the past, I want to use that all as information rather than just looking at how removal matches up against average power and toughness in the format that we're looking at. No, that makes total sense to me. So the, the thing I really like here is talking about talking about how the removal matches up against the creatures that matter, uh, you know, and you brought up Starcrown Stag and what what kills Starcrown Stag. And I think that's a great way to look at the removal as well. And I think we may have gone overboard a little bit on like clunky or expensive removal not being so good. So specifically Electrify and Strangling Spores like are cards that kill Starcrown Stag, right? And you know, if you're planning on 3-0ing a draft, you know, and you get matched up against a white deck in the finals, they're probably going to have Starcrown Stag and you're probably going to be glad that you have Electrify or Strangling Spores in your deck. So I feel like you and I as a team, like since in Ixalan, we were so upside down because we both had the clunky removal so high and we were both so wrong about it. Yes. I think we've overcorrected a little bit and I think we're undervaluing 
like the super expensive removal or the not hyper efficient removal, like electrify and strangling spores a little bit. And I think it is just fine. Like I think those cards are C pluses and that we should probably both pick them a little higher and put them in our decks more. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. I think you had a much better handle on what removal was good in this format than I did. I went on sort of like a roller coaster from like the crash course to initially feeling like synergy was the way to go in this set and then like pushing removal to the side a little bit except for like the best spells. And then I really had to like slowly incorporate removal back into my higher picks realizing that I had made a mistake in that sort of course correction. Moving on to number 10. My next takeaway is that our Discord trophy page is totally legit and it turned me on to some key cards and how archetypes were successful early in M19. And so the first thing I want to take away from this is that I plan to religiously check in with the trophy hype section of our Discord at the start of the format because it's so useful to see the decks of the trophy at the start of a format. I think it's way easier to copy someone's successful blueprint early on than it is to guess at how you think, you know, red, white's supposed to look or how blue, green's supposed to look um, and try to go at it yourself with the blinders on, like just hoping that you're right. If you see a deck that 3-0'd, chances are there are pieces in there that led to that deck 3-0'ing. And so some ones that jump out to me that I wouldn't have known about had it not been for like conversations with you or the Discord is red green four power. I certainly heard about that first in the Discord. Mono green, you posting that in the Discord. Mono blue, I think you also had early at the start of the format and just successful red white decks. Like I didn't draft that much. You didn't draft that much. And I think there was a huge gap between what successful red white aggro go wide decks looked like and just the average ones that two one or maybe one two. So being able to see what the key pieces in those decks are in the discord trophy hype page was awesome. And I plan to keep up with that at the start of the format. Yeah, I used to never really check in on the trophy hype section and it's because i felt like it was the one section where people were just like talking in a vacuum it didn't feel like a community like one person would post a trophy deck and then no one would respond and then another person would post a trophy deck but that's what it's for it's sort of like the level up i had i was like oh it's not a conversation piece really you're just like there to be able to see oh you trophied with red white what does that look like what does at least one iteration of 3-0ing with a red white deck look like and then you can start to draw conclusions from seeing multiples of them, but you don't get that if you're not paying close attention to them. Number 11, bounce spells now are just good. That's what I think. So if we look at some recent formats, if we look at M19, Disperse was good interaction. It was cheap, it was efficient, it allowed you to interact with combat tricks. I mean, I've been talking about this, again, we talked about this with Zach Allen when he was on a couple weeks ago about how I just feel like we have had in our minds about how unsummon, you need to set up this sort of like perfect situation where these bounce spells are good and i don't think that's really the case anymore if we look back at previous sets blink of an eye was one of the best commons in dominaria and i do know that if it was kicked it replaced itself which was a huge boon for it the amount of bounce in rivals and just triple ixalan was very abundant best being expelled from Arazka, but even depths of desire was quite strong and yes i know that was an aura based format at least for triple ixalan so that made bounce spells better especially in the heyday of of beard and triple ixalan Winds of Rebuke was a card I always wanted one of in all of my blue decks in Triple Amonkhet or in HOU. So I think as removal has gotten clunkier and creature combat is more about what the games are and tricks and even auras sometimes have moved to the forefront, I think Blue Bounce has a real place in every limited deck and I definitely want one copy of those efficient bounce spells. I agree with that. I think my my main thing regarding Blue Bounce is that I the first one I'm very excited about 
and I want it in my deck, but I'm not sure that it needs to be picked highly. I think that depends on the availability of it in the context of the set and sort of where it ends up in the common power rankings, because I don't know that you necessarily want more than one. Sure, I I can definitely get behind that. But I do like being able to be like, I've got one in the main. And if this looks like it's going to be great, I have access to more in my sideboard. So depending on again, how you what you said, like, how the format shakes out what the draft environment looks like, like, how you need to prioritize that I think will differ. But I think the strength of it is going to stay the same. Yeah, there is nothing better than blocking with a bounce spell up. It's just the safest warm cocoon <laughs> on the planet. You just feel like a little kangaroo in your mama's pouch. All right. Number 12, don't let impressions of cards from sealed completely warp your impressions for draft. So just recently on MTGO, we've now been able to play sealed before like you know, the actual release, like you can do like when people do their Saturday pre-release on MTGO that whole weekend, you can just jam sealed events if you want. And I think this has a tendency maybe a little bit to skew impressions of speed of the format and even the viability of some cards. So for example, like Chaos Wand was absolutely busted in sealed that first weekend when you and I jammed a bunch of sealed and that blue black deck we had that just dirtled and spin its wheels mm-hmm. and Salvager of Secrets back Lich's Caress. Like was just an absolute dream. Arcane Encyclopedia was a huge house in sealed for us. And I think maybe that if you're not careful and you're not vigilant, that can lead to you overvaluing the wrong cards maybe once draft rolls around on Monday. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think it's then hard. I feel like you get the same kinds of questions when you're streaming, when people are like, well, why aren't you taking this? Why aren't you taking this? And it's like, well, we got to think about how things match up differently based on sealed and draft. And I think looking at speed of the format was definitely something I missed for M19. Well, and I think another huge, I would say, you know, like as far as early success, I did play like way more sealed this time around before I started drafting than I ever have. And just getting a handle on the cards and figuring out, okay, that was good. Like I probably ought to move that up in my pick order a little bit in draft. Even if it's just trying to get gradations between the cards that you know are C's or gradations between the cards that you know are C minuses, just getting your hands on the cards early for sealed, I think can probably lead to a better understanding of the draft format early on. All right, number 13, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room, at least for me, is that I think if a deck is being touted as the best deck in the format by the community at large, it's probably worth figuring out if I haven't found my way into it naturally. So I think, you know, a big storyline of this format, at least for me in this podcast, is that I didn't play Red White until over 100 drafts deep. It just wasn't a deck that I came across naturally, and it was hard for me to figure out how to get into it. I wasn't like actively seeking not to do it, but I think maybe at some point in the format's lifetime for me, I probably should have tried to aggressively seek out like what I was missing about it. And I'm also sort of interested in talking about this with you because I don't think we have really. And I think on air is probably the certainly the best way to do it to share with our listeners about like the discussion of this lesson here. And I think there's two different schools of thought. And I think the first school of thought is as a competitive source of information on the podcast, it's our responsibility to have experience with all aspects of a format as we're sort of like touting ourselves as experts or whatever. Or the other school of thought is that you and I aren't really people with star power attached to the show. We're just sort of two guys having high win rates and large sample sizes as a way to show validity to our podcast. And if we sacrifice that for experimenting slash forcing certain archetypes, we're not going to be able to have the former to advertise as 
things that might excite people. And a lot of our magic playing is on stream where we want to be winning or be playing decks that we feel confident in, which would be another knock against trying to force or experiment with something like Red White. Now, this is definitely an anomaly for us, I think, in terms of the lifespan of our podcast. Like, I think this was the first time where we were sort of missing out on a color entirely or an archetype. But I'm sort of curious to hear what your thoughts are about all of that. I know that's a lot to digest at once. No, I I 100% agree completely. And you are not alone in that boat. I am certainly as guilty as you, if not more guilty. So 50 drafts in, I still have not drafted red blue. And I'm not even trying to avoid that one. Like, I'd be glad to jam red blue. That deck looks like a blast to play. I just haven't found my way into it. And I've only played red white, like probably two, three times. And it does. It's been very highly touted by the community. So I think I do agree that as a podcast, if we're going to be taken seriously, you and I have a responsibility to figure out what the best archetypes are and certainly play with all of the archetypes and be familiar with them. So I think that's true. But I also agree with the second point and just, you know, to talk with you about it. And I I would be curious to hear your thoughts, but I I assume you agree because you and I are very similar people. Mm -hmm. Like There is nothing worse than streaming and playing a deck you do not want to be playing. There is no worse feeling on the planet than losing with a deck that you don't want to be playing on stream. A hundred percent. And then what you have people coming in being like, wow, this deck looks bad. And then you get to go, I know, or like, yeah, but I have to like experiment. Yeah, it feels bad. And then I don't, then you're not playing well. You're not like looking for lines or like thinking critically. You're just sort of in this like spiraling hole of misery. Yes, like the first five times you have a pretty good attitude about it. Yeah. And then like by the 15th or 20th time when someone says, oh, this deck is blah, blah, blah. Like when they come in the chat, (laughs) you're just like, oh my God, can I please start a new draft? Yeah, right. So I think as a solution to this, you know, there's been some talk in the Discord with Kaz, who's one of our earliest uh, supporters in Patreon, Mm -hmm. that he and maybe some other people uh, have been talking about saving like some 3-0 decks or just like some really rock solid stereotypical versions of the archetypes that have a lot of the key commons and a lot of the key uncommons. And for you and I and other people that are interested to be able to export them on MTGO and jam matches to get a feel for how they play out so that we can play with the decks and evaluate the cards. And that way we don't have to put our win rates quite on the line so much when we're experimenting and trying to figure out the archetypes if there's something we really haven't been able to find our way into like Red White. Yeah. I mean, I want to say again that this is an, an anomaly. This has been the exception, not the rule in terms of our podcasting experience. But I, I agree. I, I want to be able to go on the cast and not just go, well, I've watched some videos or I've played against this deck. Like I want to be able to say this is my experience of the thing and this is what my experience is going to offer you, the listener that is different than other sources of content you can find. Right, right, right. Yeah. Moving on to number 14. I think abilities or creatures that reward attacking are super powerful and often even format defining. So if we take a look at Starcrown's Dag from M19, and not just Starcrown's Dag, but the three Musketeers, Angel of the Dawn and Pegasus Courser, all three very much want to be attacking in an aggro deck. Territorial Hammerskull from Ixalan was a house and was format defining. In Amonkhet, the exert mechanic, just being able to attack with your creatures and the fact that they were so much better on offense than defense was hugely format defining. Battalion, if we go back to Gatecrash and looking forward to return to Ravnica with Mentor, maybe. Mm-hmm. And even back to Concept here with Raid, really rewarded attacking and was a very powerful mechanic if you could curve out and get your Raid triggers going in order in Cascade. Yeah, I mean, I am skeptical of Mentor at the moment, but it is a mechanic that rewards attacking 
purely. And I think that anything like that is worth taking a look at from a power level perspective. My hope, because it does look like there's a lot of dirtly stuff, my hope is that that deck is real and keeps those dirtle decks in check because that really makes for an exciting limited format. And we should probably say what Mentor is. Mentor is when a creature attacks... Uh, if it, if a creature, if you control a creature with power less than the creature that's attacking with mentor, you get to put a plus one plus one counter on that creature. Uh, the creature has to be attacking. Right. That's what I said. No, the other creature has to be attacking. Oh, yeah. really? Both creatures have Both to be attacking? Creatures have to be attacking. I need to read spoilers more carefully. <laughs> Do you want to take that again or... <laughs> No, it's fine. I, I have no shame. <laughs> we'll leave it in there. All right. Number 15, ending this list. Blue removal is hard to evaluate. Yes. I think the Dwindle Hill that I... I don't feel like I died on it, but I definitely got sick on it, is something that was a huge takeaway from this format for me. I think I came in hot on Dwindle. I felt like, you know, it just looked like basically clean removal. It was sort of like Water Knot or Deep Freeze, like it was just going to do the thing. And I really backed off of it. I didn't really like that card in the main deck a lot. I certainly felt like against some blue decks and green decks, it was quite strong, but often that drawback was very, very real. We came in medium on Essence Scatter and we quickly had to raise our grade. Counterspell in Anniversary 25 was great. Syncopate in Dominaria was medium. Deep Freeze in Dominaria was medium, but Blink of an Eye was an all-star. It is really hard to know where to place like bounce effects, the aura removal effects, the counterspell effects, and figure out how they match up in different formats and what makes them shine and what makes them stink. So I'm going to try and be much more flexible. I think that's the key is to be flexible in adjusting my evaluations of these effects in the future. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I feel like I've been on the wrong side of the roller coaster every time. <laughs> like, like when Counterspell was great, I was like, yes, Syncopate's going to be the best blue common in Dominaria. Nope. Okay, Syncopate wasn't great. All right, I'm not going to put Essence Scatter in my top three commons in M19. Wrong. Best blue common. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've just been on the wrong end of it each time. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, maybe the blues cards are often split between aggro and control roles, and maybe one of them is going to be stronger than the other in the context of the format. And I agree, just being flexible and having conversations early on is going to be key. And we need to be very aware for those top blue commons early on in the format. Yeah, I mean, even after we came in on Essence Scatter being the number one common, when we had our episode where we re-ranked all the top three commons in each color, our answers for blues number two and number three were like, it depends. Like, look at these six <laughs> cards. It might be one of these, depending on what your archetype is and what your deck wants to do. So I think that's a really good point you bring up of like looking at maybe not just like blue in a vacuum, but blue in the context of the set in terms of what it's for two color archetypes are and then maybe looking at the like average of, or something or seeing like is essence scatter good in blue white the same as it's good in blue black etc cetera, etc cetera. might be a helpful way to approach it right and i think that's why essence scatter is the best blue common because it's very good in all four of the blue color pairs. exactly right and the other ones are you get to choose pick six <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. yeah yeah i actually just thought of number 16 right now while we were sitting here i was reflecting on m19 and i think another takeaway is that auras are good and we need to not be afraid to play them. I think you and I were champions of the green-white Auras deck for this format. And I think the green-white Auras deck was very good. I just literally got spanked by a quadruple of the green-white uncommon. Oh my god. I got I got like not even Aura Cestral recalled. I got Auras putting draw fours on me in a match. It was just insane. My opponent's deck was bonkers. And it was with cards like Oakenform that I just I feel like get shamed. Mm -hmm. And I think... 
ROs are starting to have a place in magic. And while they're not always going to be good or, you know, they are high variance, but I think if you're just saying, I'm going to be the type of person that doesn't play ROs, I think you're doing it wrong. And I think you need to be open to evaluating ROs in the context of the set. And I think ROs are playable. And I think you not, need to not feel like you got cheesed when somebody goes turn two, two drop into turn three Oaken form. And I think you really pegged that about this format. And I think that needs to be a takeaway. I agree. I'm pretty happy to have had my like first written article not be a total dud about predicting something <laughs> in the format. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite the like Ixalan that I thought it was going to be. But Oakenform didn't feel embarrassing. I mean, you nailed Talons of Wildwood. I thought that wasn't going to be great, but it ended up being like a pretty strong role player in almost every green deck. There was definitely a place for auras, and I agree that we want to look out for those in the future. It feels like feels like it's the rule, not the exception anymore. Awesome. I really like this as a podcast episode format in terms of like wrapping up a limited set. I think this is a really cool way to like take some lessons away and look to the future and figure out how to not make those same mistakes. Yeah, 100% agree. We also have our M19 treasure hunt wrapped up. Thanks to all your hard work on the spreadsheet. Really appreciate it. We should announce those people now. Yeah, let's do it. So our treasure hunt winners are Generation D20, CYPIZ, Sane Mantis, and Curzone. Congratulations. Thank you all for your hard work unlocking those achievements. Please get in touch with us for your draft sets of the current format. Yeah, and if you guys want to hang out, if you're done drafting M19 and you want to wait around, we'll hook you up with the Guilds of Ravnica draft set. Absolutely. Speaking of our treasure hunt and treasure hunt winners, we have set the date for the 15-hour stream. It is Tuesday, October 16th from 9 a.m. to midnight. So take the day off work, mark your calendars, Get ready to strap in for a bumpy ride. And I'm sure you had more achievements than me. So I will once again be <laughs> the second shift. Oh, no. Well, we can we can try and rejigger it. You made a plea at the beginning of the format. Like, can we do this some other way? Because I'm just like always going to have more drafts than you just based on my schedule. Like, I'm just going to be able to play more magic than you. So we'll figure it out. How about how about this? How about win rate? Oh, damn. Yeah, that's not going to look good for me. OK, then I will. Then I'll <laughs> not, take not for this you format, taking... but next format. I'm, I'm good. The second hour shift this time. But next format, I, I vote for win rate because I will have enough of it, enough drafts under my belt that my win rate will be relevant, I think. Yes, I agree with that. I'm fine to do win. Rate All right. I'm so sure. psyched. I've got a chance, ladies and gentlemen. Definitely going to have the second shift every time now. <laughs> no. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. If you want to get in touch with me or Ben, you can check us out on Twitch. I stream at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben streams at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We are under those same handles on Twitter. And you can also tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. I am currently writing bi-weekly articles for Cardsphere's blog. If you want some more Lord Tupperware content, please check that out. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.
And for my next trick, I will turn this omen speaker into an ox.